A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to a special edition of True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Everyone in the world of true crime has a story to tell about a case that they worked or that they lived through. Some are high profile, some you have never heard of, but they are all fascinating. Today's case is about a true survivor. It is the story of a woman who was kidnapped, raped, stabbed in both eyes, and then left to die in her car while it was set on fire but she didn't die. Instead, she spent the rest of her life becoming an outspoken advocate for victims' rights. With us today is Carol Costello, a reporter and former CNN anchor. She also teaches and mentors students at Loyola Marymount University in the broadcast journalism department. Carol, you covered this when you were 22 years old. My God, if only you now could have a conversation with your 22-year-old self. Life would be so different, right? Oh, you are so right about that. Uh, You know, I've always really tried to analyze why this case has stuck with me all these years, because working at CNN as a national correspondent and anchor, I've covered every type of crime and story imaginable, like horrific things, school shootings, um, Hurricane Katrina, both Iraq wars, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yet this woman's story stuck with me for more than 30 years. And um, I'm so glad that you're here, Carol. Honestly, I've never met you, but I've always been a huge fan of your work because you're a true journalist. And um, I so connected with this idea that you have a story that you can't let go of that that changed you. And I, I so identify with that. So I'm thrilled that you're here. And the reason we're talking about this case is because you are working on uh, a new podcast about this case about your experience and it's called blind Blind rage Rage. wow blind rage you know you often hear stories about um survivors of crime um praying that they'll survive asking god to help and i think that's terrific right wherever you get your soul is that's great but this particular woman whose name was phyllis coddle um she gained strength strength through rage like she survived that horrific crime that lasted hours she was tortured for hours and then she was left to die tied up in a burning locked car and she managed to get out and when she rolled away from the car when she couldn't feel the heat of the flames anymore and she knew she was safe she did not pray Um, as she told me she got pissed off this guy was not going to get her she was going to fry him. And as she, um, you know, as the days passed and she worked with police and she eventually told her story to the media, she found a way to control her own narrative. And I think that's why her story has stuck with me because she managed to control her own story. He wasn't the story, the guy who did that to her. He never became a story. And that was because of Phyllis, totally Phyllis. Did Phyllis know at that moment that she rolled out of that car and she could, okay, so she's feeling that she's away from it because she's feeling the heat is less intense, but does she know that what's happened to her eyes? Like, does she realize, I mean, I know, you know, when you're stabbed, but it's, it's, I would think I would be in denial. 
I don't think she consciously thought about it in that moment, but she knew she was terribly hurt, right? And she couldn't see. So as she's trying to get out of that car, she can't see and her hands are tied in front of her, right? So she has to somehow find the locks of the car to unlock the car, open the door, roll out. And then, you know, when people come to her aid, she doesn't know who they are. Maybe it's the guy her attacker, she doesn't know. So she's going through all of those things in her head. So I don't think she consciously said to herself, oh, he stabbed me in my eyes and, and now I'll be permanently blind. I think she still had hope she would be able to see eventually. Um, and so were you uh, assigned this story immediately or how, uh, what was the process that, that you ended up covering this? Well, I worked at a very small television station, TV 23 in Akron, and I was 22 and had been newly hired right out of college. And that was my first big crime story to cover. They do not prepare you in college to cover such things. No, they don't. I, you know, that's why I said, if only your, your present self could have been inside your heart and your head for that story because I don't know any 22 year old, either journalist, cop, physician, firefighter, you know, you're 22, 32, 42, you know so much more and are just about life. I, I, I would not have had the wherewithal emotionally. Well, a couple of things hit you. Um, first of all, I didn't know such evil existed in the world at 22. You know, I came from rural America, fresh from the farm, and I was thrown into this world I had no idea actually existed because you only see it on television, right? As a young person, you watch TV, blah. But when you experience it in real life, it's quite different. Um, I had experienced some sexual trauma in college myself. So it awakened all of those feelings of helplessness within me to cover this story. Mm -hmm. And so I was dealing with that subconsciously, right? This woman. And and I'll just tell you a quick story. Um, so I remember I was, it was maybe a week or two after, um, you know, uh, Phyllis was rescued from that burning car and she's in the hospital. And my news director calls me in the field and says, you know, Carol, you really should call the hospital and schedule an interview with this victim. And at the time I, I didn't even know her name. No one did because you don't release the names of rape victims, police don't. Um, <clears throat> and I remember being taken aback by that. And I, and I said, well, I, I, she's two weeks ago, she went through this horrific event and you want me to call the hospital to arrange an on-camera interview with someone who's been so brutalized. I, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can do it. And he said to me, you know what? You're gonna eventually have to do it or someone else will from a competing station and we'll get beat. But so it's about the story, not the human being, which I think is always some, something that always tortured me as a journalist. It's a very torturous process as a human being. So torturous and so complicated, right? Mm -hmm. Because I couldn't find it within myself to approach this poor woman after what she'd gone through for an on-camera interview. But other reporters did. And Phyllis was an unusual survivor because eventually she decided she wanted to talk on camera because she wanted this guy to be caught. 
she thought through the power of what she looked like after this vicious attack and what she could say that would, um, you know, activate the community to help put this guy behind bars. So I, as a young reporter, was left with, you know, watching the competing station, having this great interview from Phyllis, who, you know, had bandages over her eyes and she's right there on camera saying what happened. Um, and, and, and trying to decide whether I was wrong not to approach her, right? Was I wrong? Because she wanted to do this, but right. not and all survivors do. No, they don't. And it's that, that approach and that knock on the door. And, you know, um, I have always felt really strongly. And I think as you mature as a journalist, um, then I had the strength and the confidence in myself to push back. And I'd always, you know, if, if I'd say, look, if you want to talk, that's fantastic. If you don't totally get it and I totally respect it. And, you know, um, you have to get to a place in your career where you can push back on your boss and say, hell no, are you crazy? You know, we're not going to re-victimize a victim here. So, I, you know, and I totally get what you're saying, but when you're 22 years old, oh, it was you don't more, know. Yeah. I it was like, I don't even have time to process that. It's like, I just, as a human being, do not want to approach this woman. But it was not, it was not what exactly what you just said, that that um, journalists who are experienced think to themselves in their heads before they approach anybody who suffered a, a horrible trauma. And this is 1984. So let's, let's put everything back in perspective here. There's no internet. There are no cell phones. People watch the news every day at home. I don't even know if there was morning news back then. There may have been probably morning news. <laughs> um, but you know what I'm saying? It was a different way of communicating and getting your news. This was a huge story in Akron, Ohio. So that, that kind of sets the tone for everything. So when you finally got a chance to meet Phyllis for the first time, what, what was that like? And did you, had the um, suspect, the assailant, been caught yet? I met Phyllis um, after the suspect was taken into custody. Um, and I must say, by that time, she appeared to have it all together. She really didn't, right? But she appeared that way because she was on a mission and she had that burning rage inside her that she was going to like go through the process to get him convicted. So I must say, when I finally met her, I was intimidated by her because to me, she just appeared as this superhero figure, right? She was so strong and I'm trying to figure out, you know, I couldn't even admit that something happened to me in college. And here was this woman right out talking about it. And this was 1984 and that rarely happened. Mm -hmm. You know, it seldom happens today, but back then it almost never happened. Yeah. So I must say I was intimidated by her, um, which I don't know made for the most effective interview, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's hard, you know, you're, you're a young reporter. Um, so uh, a man is finally arrested, Samuel J. Herring. So who is this guy? Like, why did he attack Phyllis? And why did he have to stab her eyes out? a vicious thing right you have to look at someone in the face and do that that's vicious that yeah. says something about somebody right yeah well i will say 
Samuel J. Herring has never admitted to the crime ever. Um, he believes it was a case of mistaken identity and he used to write letters to Phyllis. Oh my Lord. Um, yes, yeah, saying he forgave her for falsely accusing him, right? Phyllis, by the way, could never identify him because of course she's blind. Right. So it was a tricky thing for police, really tricky. You know, even to find where um, Phyllis was raped in this vacant house, she couldn't see for them to take her around town and say, is that it? Is this the street? She couldn't see. So police had to rely on her memories of that day. Were and there any couldn't... forensics, Carol? Because, you know, when we talk about these cases from this decade, uh, it's a different way of policing. It is a different mm -hmm. way of investigating because of the tools. Were there any forensics or anything that connected him to the crime? Uh, no, no, that was never brought out in court. There was DNA, but it was contaminated by some sort of cleaning solvent. So like now there might be sophisticated tests that might exonerate him or prove his guilt, but back then there wasn't. So no, there wasn't any usable DNA evidence that would really tie him to the crime maybe except for a few fibers but if you read that part of the court transcript you're like hmm that just sounds like junk science right mm, interesting so it was all circumstantial evidence that convicted him and you know people's memories are faulty and she only um saw sporadically uh, through a traumatizing time where he was taking her and she never really got a good look at his face. So he always denied that he had anything to do with this crime. He's always tried to get out of prison. And you know, there's this movement now to let people who've been incarcerated for long periods of time out of prison because the experts say they're less likely to commit any more violent crime. Um, but Phyllis's family really, they don't believe that and it's their mission to keep him in prison. So every parole hearing, they have been there and they have been very loud and have gotten letters and have mounted a real campaign to not have him released, which I can understand from their perspective. I mean, their campaigns have been insane because Phyllis was so known in the community. She became like this, um, actually she became a star. Like people flocked to her dogs. She became a celebrity. And so, you know, the prosecutor's office would get thousands of letters from the community urging them to do whatever they could to keep this guy behind bars. So, um, so their campaigns have been very effective. But going back to who Samuel Herring is, mm -hmm. he grew up with perhaps every disadvantage you could have in life. He grew up poor. Um, I could never determine who his father was or if his father had any place in his life ever. Uh, was a single mother, uh, black, so there wasn't the resources available to them to get him help because he committed his first crime when he was 11 years old. Mm. So by the time he was in his 20s, he hadn't been in prison or juvenile detention for most of his life. You know, but when a kid does something at 11, it kind of needs psychological help, but right. that wasn't available to him. Right. Not right. excusing what he did, yeah. but I'm just saying who he was. 
And at that time, and you remember, I don't know if you remember it in 1984, but uh, Ronald Reagan was president and there was Mm -hmm. this whole, and crime was at an all time high, sort of like it is today. So police were under pressure to arrest someone quickly and put them in prison, even for minor infractions. So whatever mistake that Samuel Herring made along the way from his journey from 11 years old to 27, any little thing he did back in the back of jail. But then they would let him out, like they would let him out on early parole because the prisons became overcrowded because they were throwing so many people in prison. And Phyllis, like what is Phyllis's story at this time of the attack? Who is she? She is 44 years old, a single mother. Um, Her oldest two daughters had just um, left the house and were on their own. At that time, she was at this turning point. Um, She had an abusive marriage that she'd gotten out of years before. But, you know, she never got any financial help from her ex-husband. So she she just never had any money. She had to live with her father along with her daughters. So she's 44. Her two daughters had just left the house. She had one more to go. She's thinking to herself, oh, my God, no more dead-end jobs. I'm free. I can like maybe find a better job. You know, I'm, I'm still young. I'm 44. I can change my life. And then her life changed in ways that she never expected. So you covered the case, you know, because it's a huge news story. Did you also cover the court trial as well? I did. It was my first full trial that I sat through the trial. I listened to all of the testimony and I reported on it. And um, it was a circus because the media, you know, you know, I'm in a tiny market. We're a tiny station, but, you know, all the Cleveland stations were there and then it hit the national news. So networks were there as well. And every newspaper you can think of. And it was just, it was just a circus, especially when Phyllis testified herself. Um, After that, I just remember there were like dozens and dozens of reporters with big cameras surrounding Phyllis and they wouldn't let me in to put my microphone under Phyllis's mouth. Um, And I remember I was so frustrated that I turned off a camera of one of the computers. It was such a terrible thing to do. Carol. Let me Naughty, naughty Carol. You may have been young, but you were slick. (laughs) By that time. I had learned a thing or two. So so when the photographer looked down to see what was wrong, I just scooted right in and I was able to get my microphone. Oh my Lord. Oh my Lord. So, so at this point, are you, you know, when you cover a case um, for a long time, and this has certainly happened to me and certainly later in my career, you do develop a relationship with the people, generally the survivors, the victims, depending the family. It really depends on who it is. You, you Over the years, you develop a relationship just because you get to know them, um, whether you're trying to have a relationship with them or not. What is the status of your relationship with her at this time, with Phyllis? Um, well, she knows I'm a local reporter, but it, but we don't really have a, um, a, a a relationship beyond professional, right? Mm-hmm. But after the trial's over and Samuel Herring is convicted and he goes to prison, um, which is an interesting story in itself, um, I continued to follow her story because she became this advocate 
not only um, in support of other survivors, but also um, blind people, right? And she also spoke out against um, letting violent prisoners out on early parole. She testified before Congress. And she also sued the parole board for letting this guy out of prison early. Mm. So I was able, so, so when all the sensational stuff died down around her story, of course, most of the reporters forgot about her, right? Because that's how sadly it is. Mm-hmm. But my fascination with Phyllis remained. So I did a number of stories on her journey after the crime. And then, you know, I went on and got another job in another market. And I, but I would always think about Phyllis and like get in touch with her just briefly from time to time. And the last substantive time I've got a hold of her was in 2004. And I interviewed her again extensively. And we had planned to write a book and all this stuff. And, you know, just life interfered and I didn't do it. And I so regret it. I so regret it. You I regret I what part, it. Carol? What part do you regret? I regret not writing the book with Phyllis's help because Phyllis oh. um, died of cancer in 2015. Isn't that so tragic? Oh, I hate myself for not. Oh, oh, I do. So that's why this podcast is so important to me too, because I feel her story needs to be shared, especially at a time when so many people are looking for hope and strength. And she is the epitome of those things. So this podcast, you know, so obviously her story has been told. And it's been covered in real time. And um, so I'm curious, what what's your approach in this podcast? What are, you, what are you doing with this podcast? You know, her story has been covered, but only the salacious parts, right? So like I collected every police document and court document I could find. I talked to five members of her family. I talked to the detective in charge of her case. Because I, I think it's interesting to know how it all goes down. Like, like how does the story unfold from the family's perspective, from the police's perspective, from my perspective as a young reporter? Because all of these things are working together and they drive the story in different ways. Um, so I find that incredibly fascinating. Um, how each how one person's crime, what happens to one person affects so many other people around her, entities around her. And and I believe Phyllis changed things. So I, I wanted to explore that. Like how was she able to take charge of her own story? How was she? That was Who's gonna amazing. argue with her? I mean, she's a strong woman and you know, she who's there's something about a strong woman, right? And um she... But see, you you mentioned Samuel Herring, right? Right. And I all, but no one really ever doubled down on why he did what he did, or if he really did it, or what were there other suspects? Those things really weren't covered because Phyllis was so out front. Mm-hmm. And I've often wondered, did I do a disservice because I didn't go there as a young reporter? Because today I would have. Mm-hmm. Even though I think there are, there's far too much emphasis on the perpetrators. But so hold on case, a second. Carol, are you saying that based on revisiting this case and because you're looking at it with um, a, f- a kind of fresh set of eyes, a more educated um, set of eyes. Mm-hmm. So are you saying that you you think it's possible that he didn't do it and that there was a rush to just put someone away? 
Well, I will say that his representation was not great. Yeah. Uh, it was not. Um, I think you could make an argument. Like if I were a defense attorney or a reporter now covering that trial, I might have questions. Going through the police documents, I can't see that police did anything wrong. I'm not saying that at all, but I wanted to know more. Like it made me want to know more about Samuel Herring and other suspects. And um, I just wanted to know more. And I don't think that anybody strove to know more back in the day. So I don't know. I'm still exploring that part of the case, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's and her family reaction to that? Because, you know, when you bring up, sometimes asking those very difficult questions of the people in the middle of something, they are the hardest questions to ask because um, it's so painful been, for them. Right. And they've been there and they've, they've done it. They lived through the trial. The person's been convicted by a jury. We are done here. But, you know, the argument on the opposite side is true justice for Phyllis is to make sure that whoever did this to her is the one who's been punished. Yes. Yes. I've been fully transparent with her family. They're kind of used to it because um, Samuel Herring sent those awful letters. And at every parole board hearing, he has never admitted guilt. So they're used to this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't have a strong conviction that he's innocent of anything. Like, I just don't think that's true. Um, but they understand the way the world works. Um, and, you know, they're sort of like Phyllis. Like, her daughter is a carbon copy. It's crazy. <laughs> She's a strong woman, too. So, um, so they understand. They do, but they have no doubts that he did it. None whatsoever. I'm still, you know, I, I listened to um, the, the trailer for your podcast, which was available at the time of this recording. And um, I think besides the fact that Phyllis is an amazingly strong woman, I keep going back to the same thing that's very disturbing to me. Who stabs someone's eyes out who does that who does that it, it is a level of violence um that is so horrific i'm just having a hard time getting past that part of it well according to the um the chief detective the, the detective who um led the charge in phyllis's case he he thought it was someone who'd attacked women before and um, this was an escalation so whoever this person was that did this to phyllis had had attacked women in a vicious manner before and it culminated in this final vicious act because obviously when he left her in that burning car he thought she would die so he wanted to torture not just kill her right or why wouldn't he just killed her right Mm -hmm. instead of like leaving her in the car and setting it on fire and going on his way. Um, Samuel Herring's defense was he, the crimes he was convicted of did not involve women. That's fascinating. 
Mm-hmm. Now, when you look into his background more extensively, as I did as a more experienced reporter, um, there were domestic violence cases in his past that were pretty vicious, but nothing like stabbing someone like that. And, you know, his DNA would be in the system now because he's incarcerated. So if anything popped up on a cold case. Right. Right. Fascinating. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Carol, as you moved on through your career, um, you stayed in touch with Phyllis, which strengthened this bond. I guess, what is the part of the story that you're telling in this podcast that you've never had the opportunity to tell? How it affected me personally. Um, I would like people to know that journalists are people who care, but I want people to know the process. I want them to know the craziness in the moment when you're covering a sensational case and what that's like. I want them to know, I want to like put it into context in 1984, when things were really weird for women, really weird, like domestic violence was poo-pooed. Right. The concept of date rape had just oh, been didn't coined. exist. There's no exist, such thing. Right. So all of those women coming forward saying their dates or their boyfriends raped them were just whiny women. Right. It was that. Like 1984 was a very strange time for women. You didn't see many women like Phyllis. Right. So I, I just wanted people to understand just the, I don't know, the witch's brew that was brewing in the midst of this horrible thing that happened to this single person and um, how it all transpired the way it did. And, and the unusual part for me, again, is how she was able to take control. I've been constantly fascinated with, with the way Phyllis managed to use what happened to her to get things done. Right. She mm-hmm. just did. She changed laws. She um, she improved um, rape crisis organizations. Um, she could persuade the prosecutor's office to do certain things that she wanted them to do that she thought would help victims of crime. She constantly found ways to get people to do what she wanted. And she used what happened to her to do it. She was not shy about that at all. I so I like always found that. that fascinating. I love it too, but I think yeah. it's so, there are people out there doing that. There really are. But I don't think enough attention is paid to them, right? Mm-hmm. So that they is do. another. They do, they change laws. The survivors or their families of the survivors, or the, you know, they do manage to make a difference and change laws. And I think it's a way of all of the survivors that I've interviewed and their family members over the decades, it's. You know, you can't find any meaning in this horrible thing that happened to Phyllis. There's no way. I mean, what are you going to say? It was God's will? I mean, there's there's nothing that anyone can say that can possibly explain this away and, and take that hurt away. There, there just isn't. So I think, you know, if you take an incident like that and you use it and you take that power and you harness it for good and for the good and the betterment of others to help them, to save them, that is the greatest gift. And I believe that to be the most healing thing, which is why I do love crime reporting because it's those people who 
give me hope and inspiration and teach me about what it is to heal, sometimes forgive, and a concept that is one that I think, well, I struggle with every day and every moment. And like, did I judge someone? What did I? And, and so that to me is the gift that I get from this, from these heinous stories. That is what my takeaway. And so I think it's brilliant and wonderful that you are honoring Phyllis in this way because she affected so many people. She did. And she still does. She's just, I don't know. I love Phyllis. I once asked her, I said, you know, if you go back and change things like, and she, she would never say, um, I wish I hadn't been attacked. She never said that. She thought that attack made her a better person and gave her a purpose in life. See, I don't think I would have that strength. I don't think I would. I think there would be a part of me, you know, again, struggling with things like forgiveness, bitterness. I mean, there are some people who, um, after an event like this, they understandably crumble and can never be put back together. I'll tell you a quick story that one of the anecdotes about Phyllis that I love. So after Samuel Herring was arrested, Phyllis was sitting in her bedroom at night. She did her part. She worked with the police. She became part of their team, which is another fascinating thing about Phyllis. She was an active part of the team looking for her own attacker. But anyway, she's, you know, someone's been arrested. She's sitting in a room and it's at night. She's in her nightgown. She's sitting up in a chair by her bed. And she's thinking, my life will never be the same. I can't see. I'm permanently blind. Um, I'm just going to be a burden on my family. What purpose do I have in life? I'm just going to be a burden. And she began to cry. And she cried so hard that her nightgown became damp in her hair. And she looked at the pills sitting beside her bed and she said to herself, you know, I'm just gonna end it. So she picked up the pills, she went into the bathroom and she you know, poured out the pills in her hand and she's blind, of course, she trips and she drops them. Oh. So she's crawling on the floor and she's going, shit, I can't even do this right. She's trying to get the pills. And suddenly she felt a hand on her shoulder. And um, it was warm. And she didn't hear voices, but in her head she heard, it's gonna be all right. And she knew that it was the hand of God. And she said to herself, or she said out loud, you know what? That hand on my shoulder is nice, but come on, you got to give me more than that. Give me a reason. Give me a reason. I'll make a deal with you. Give me a reason to survive. Give me a reason I shouldn't die, God, because you weren't there through my attack, right? Yeah, where were now, you? Now you're right. here. <laughs> and um, she claims that she heard God say, you will find a way. It will become clear to you. And for whatever reason, it gave her peace. And she got up from the floor. She left the pills on the floor. She went back to her chair and her nightgown was dry and her hair was dry and she knew what she had to do. She had to testify and she had to testify in a certain way, right? She had to testify and she needed to 
make people understand that it was not her fault, that he was to blame. And if people really wanted to know what happened to her, she was going to tell them in court in detail. Her testimony ran 120 pages. Wow. And you know, back then, 1984, victim blaming, especially on a sexual assault, it's always the victim's fault. In fact, we've moved from that, but there's still victim blaming. There's still victim blaming. And I think that that's actually, that's really important. You know, she needed to make sure everyone understood that what happened to her was not her fault. No way could she have invited such a thing. Now, didn't this happen? Was she, she was, um, was this during her lunch hour or how did this, when she? Oh, yeah. Yes, did, it was, it was noon. She, she went to work in the morning as usual and she had to go to the mall for some flower show and she approached her car at noon in the middle of a busy business park in the middle of Akron, a very busy, busy place in the city. And um, she was getting into her car and she was hit from behind with a hard object and she fought and she screamed and she beat the horn and she did everything that they told her to like they tell you to do to protect yeah. yourself when you're being mm -hmm. attacked and um you know eventually he had a knife and he and she felt the knife at her throat and he pushed her into the car and off they went and no one um, heard but, or saw anything oh yes they did oh they did man, oh yes there were people who saw a woman being pushed into a car and um, one man in particular walked right by and um, he was um, an ex-con. So he didn't have a good relationship with police. And um, he just figured that it was a domestic. There was some guy beating up on his old lady and he didn't want to get involved. And, you know, there were no camera phones back then or. Or, sir, or, or many security cameras either. No. So he walked by. That hurts me to say that. Um, but yeah, he could have stopped it, but he walked by. Mm. Was he involved? Yeah, I get in into court, that too. In, in the yes, court he, hearing? He testified? Totally. Totally. It was a long road to him though. So that's an interesting part of the story as well. Wow. This is just incredible. So Carol, um, your podcast, Blind Rage, will be available to everyone wherever they get their podcasts, right? Yep. Yep. October and 1st. where yep. can people find you if they want to follow you on social media or anything like that? Or take your class. <laughs> uh, take my class. That'd be awesome. Um, um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, there's an email address in there that you can communicate with me that way. Um, we're busy establishing a website, so we'll be able to communicate through that. And of course, there's always Twitter, and it's at Carol, um, at Carol C. I'm still like debating Facebook, just because I just, I don't find Facebook the most friendly of places. So I'm still trying to figure that one out. Yes, yes, yes. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. <laughs> well, it has been such a pleasure, Carol. Um, just just thank you so much for being so frank with us about the process and what you experienced because, you know, sometimes we have to reveal that, you know, we were the best that we were at that time. We may not have been, you know, we, we learn. We learn through our process. 
So thank you, Carol. It's been such a pleasure. Okay. You can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N, where um, whatever social media site you all use, you can find all of our episodes of all of our podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to True Crime Daily's YouTube channel. Also, we have a newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. So until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. This is a special edition of True Crime Daily, the podcast, and reminding you not to do crime.